This is Omo. 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 Welcome to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. Hi, everybody out there. This is Rosie Deloach, and I have got Jason Peoples with me. Hi. And for once, you're not on at other some other remote location. You're right here in the room with me. I know. It's special. We, we're in the same room talking. The internet isn't delaying and glitching us out. It's, it's, uh, it's special. Yes. We're coming at you from Oberlin, Ohio. Jason. The last time we were in this building. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that for you. That was my first time to Oberlin and meeting Jerry Lynn. And uh, really my first time to get instruction that wasn't from a book or the craziness of an internet forum. And uh, it was amazing. Um, a, a specific internet forum? Yes. Okay. Uh, the in, <laughs> internet forum. <laughs> And uh, uh, the most amazing thing, I think, was uh, meeting all the people that were just like me, which was crazy uh, yeah. and wonderful. Yes. And, and all the things that seemed like I must be doing something weird, they had the same experience. And that was broke my mind and made me feel more comfortable than I would have ever imagined. So if I were to try to get inside your head... Dangerous. Uh, Jason, you, you might label yourself a perfectionist. Uh, yeah, there's <laughs> definitely a pursuit of perfection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah things need to be just so. Yep. And you're in a room full of people who live and breathe by that same mantra. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And all the troubles that come with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 2019 was the last time that we were able to have Oberlin. And just to paint a picture of the room there's a total of 60 people if we're mm-hmm. combining both the restoration room and the people across the hallway in the bow room and everybody's got their own projects there's whole violins and parts of violins <laughs> and every woodworking tool you can imagine uh, in every kind of condition mm. and it's a feast for the eyes to to see what people bring out and what they work on and everybody has their own agenda. Mm-hmm. And so there's people crossing in front of each other and behind each other and asking questions of the instructors and going to the heavy tool room and making a lot of noise and then coming back and then going back to the heavy tool room because <laughs> it didn't get cut right. Uh, and so we just do that all week long. Uh, we're yeah. coming at you today on Thursday. And um, I've got some audio that I've taken throughout the week. Jason, tell me a little bit about there's there's one repair that emerged as kind of <laughs> the winner that yeah, like yeah. most not most of the room, a lot of the room is doing. So back in 2019, I think I saw one or two people working on this repair yeah. and I kind of had this necessity for it. Um, and I and I thought I'm gonna bring it to Oberlin. Little did I know it was gonna be a couple years, but I thought, okay, uh, one or two people, maybe I'll get to work with them. And I think there's like 
eight people, eight or nine people mm-hmm. that are doing the same neck graft. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. We're And we didn't even know, I think, until we were packing. Like, you're doing a neck graft? Yeah. I'm doing a neck graft. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and just for some background for people who are not inside baseball, <laughs> neck grafts, uh, they have already been replaced in just about every older Italian violin that you encounter because we standardized in the 1830s. Um, how would you explain that standardization? The, the projection, so the angle yeah. of the neck uh, and the string angle over the bridge. Uh, yeah. we, we changed that and we got it got louder and clearer and more color from it. Yeah. And, uh, it's just a different sound. Yeah. I mean, the only exceptions to that would be any violins that are supposed to be examples of their time, and they're going to have a flatter neck. So if you look at any Stradivari or uh, Del Gesu or any of those, they're going to have a different neck, and they graft on the old scroll. So the body of the violin and the artistry of the scroll remain with the original maker's intent. And so we are literally just cutting off necks <laughs> yeah, yeah. and grafting on a new one. Uh, Jason, tell me a little bit about the, your violin. Yeah. It's a graft. So um, I had somebody that was looking to get a violin fixed up to sell, and I did a, a little bit on it because I didn't want to spend a lot. And in the end, they decided to sell it to me because I kind of pointed out it needed a lot of work, and one of these things was a new neck. And that's because... Just what we talked about, the projection was very low, so the bridge was very short, um, and it kind of limited the sound and other things that were going on. In fact, it was so low that they had planed the fingerboard at an angle, so it was really thin. It's so skinny. Yeah. It's a tiny fingerboard. And in almost normal thickness at the other end to try and get some of that angle back. So, So toward the nut. Like closer to the scroll, super thick on that end. No, no, no. Oh, that, opposite. That, yeah. Okay. Then on that end to try and get back the the I, angle we didn't have. Yeah, I get confused sometimes. Uh, yes. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Over all the way up to the nut, it was like almost just like a couple millimeters. Oh thin. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Crazy thin. So it it will need a new fingerboard too. But if you there's no reason to do that if the projection's already yeah. that far off. So yeah. doing the whole thing. Absolutely. Okay, so I will get into my neck graft, yeah. but I understand that you had a very insightful talk about chalk. Yeah. Which it, which we use for what? Well, uh, what we call chalk fitting. Yeah. So when you want to make sure two surfaces are touching perfectly evenly everywhere, uh, you can use chalk to transfer over, and anywhere that it doesn't touch, the chalk won't transfer. Yeah. Um, and different types of chalk act a little differently. And um, I was talking with uh, uh, Ryan Hayes and Jimmy Dugdahl, and um, we were comparing different chalks that we had and where we got them and the, the history of the chalk and what we liked about it. And uh, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of super nerdy, but this is the level of nerdiness our tools get to. Um, <laughs> Japanese chalk, German chalk, I think uh, one of it was a Japanese chalk that mathematicians love, and there's almost a black market for because they stopped making it for a while. <laughs> this sounds like another episode with Michael coming up. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, coming up after the break, 
we're going to talk about my neck graft. Between Chicago and the West Coast, you won't find a violin shop with a more finely curated selection of instruments and bows than Claire Givens Violins in Minneapolis. The Givens team is made up of knowledgeable players who take pride in helping their customers find the right instrument or bow. Their international reputation is founded upon a commitment to maintaining high levels of expertise, craftsmanship, and relationships with customers spanning across generations. Every instrument and bow offered at Claire Givens Violins is set up in their very own workshop by an experienced team of restorers and makers under the longtime expert leadership of Douglas Lay. Need a checkup or a more extensive restoration? The workshop is known for its attention to sound and response, and players come from all over for this unmatched level of precision and care. If you're an early music player, check out Dipper Restorations, where world-renowned restorer and scholar Andrew Dipper specializes in the restoration of historical musical instruments and the making of historic replica bows. Need a checkup? Looking for an upgrade? Check out GivenViolins.com. They look forward to seeing you. Homo sapiens, I have with me here today Jackson Maberry, maker of J.G. McIntosh Rosinet Oil Varnish. Jackson, varnish cooking can be dramatic. If you're not careful, there's the potential for explosions or fire. Yeah, Rosie, that's a fact. Uh, There were laws on the books in most of Europe outlawing varnish making within the city limits exactly for that reason. Um, I imagine some of those laws are still out there, but probably uh, not thought of all that much these days. I think we've all heard horror stories, right? I feel very grateful. Personally, I have never had any flare-ups, and I credit that just to a great deal of preparation, having all of the right safety equipment, and then really just maintaining total control at all times of temperature, exhaust fumes, and the composition of of the ingredients, most of all. Get your J.G. McIntosh rosinate oil varnish and other varnishing supplies today by visiting woodfinishingenterprises.com. Search McIntosh. I'm in the company of a few dozen exceptional luthiers as we settle into our workbenches for the week. Across from me is Catherine Kidwell from Virginia, who spends much of her week working on a rib graft. Also in our grouping of desks is Sebastian Schwelm from Triangle Strings in North Carolina, carefully executing a button patch. Every time I look over at his bench, it's beautifully organized. Behind me is Damian Stepani, who was the subject of episode 26 about his experience doing luthiery from Argentina to Alaska out of his converted Mercedes-Benz bus. Luthiery on Wheels has since been translated into English for anyone out there who would like to read it. Across the aisle is Pablo Alfaro from Atlanta, who keeps getting up to sneak a whoopee cushion onto other people's seats. And the sea of greats pools out from there. Jason and Jerry have taken a spot by the windows, and their location is often crowded by people seeking advice or tools. But I have work to do on my bench. I brought a nondescript German factory violin that has a pretty flame, but someone carved a channel under the fingerboard, 
There was a weird school of thought there in some factories about leaving a void space under the fingerboard for a period there. But over time, the neck is weaker because of it. But another problem arises as I take measurements. The back of the scroll behind the peg box, it's just carved too thin. There's a small hole that has even been knocked out of it, and a previous repairer has laid a thin veneer to try to repair it. I'm prepared to chalk fit a new patch into the back, something I've done before, but the area is so uneven. It's got odd angles and scrape marks. To chalk fit it, I would want to level the area as much as possible, and we've only got about two millimeters to work with currently. Greg Sapp stops by and makes an offer. We can let a computer do the work. Casting of a bottom. Right, of a, casting of the bottom. So scan that and carve it up? Yeah. Yeah, I can do that. See what uh, what we come up with that yeah. so that we can generate a uh, infill to put on the floor of the peg box. Yeah, no problem. Do we need to do anything to prepare it? Or? No, no, I can pick up that surface. John Daly, wizard from Boston, and Greg Sapp out of the Chicago area, are about to scan a plug we made out of a product called Repro Rubber. When we made it earlier, it mixed like two-part epoxy, and in my gloved hands felt like sticky Play-Doh. I pushed it through to the bottom of the peg box, waited about 10 minutes for it to set, and pulled it out. It is set as soft rubber, holding its form. Looking on the bottom side, I see the reverse imprint of scrape marks from the bottom of that same peg box. So again, what is this called? Uh, so this scanner is uh, made by a company called LMI. Okay. They were purchased by Poliga a few years back. So they, they still sell the same model, just housed in a different casing. Um, I'm not sure the, what it's called, but it's their like mini scanner. It has a fixed focal length and an accuracy of about 0 0.03 millimeters. Yeah, this so. thing is maybe a, a foot off of the yeah. workbench. Yeah. And you've got it connected to your computer. Yeah. So we're about to do a scan. Yeah. He fires up the scanner, and my blue rubber plug is a wash in more blue, a matrix of blue dots. John messes with the focal length until he's satisfied. And soon, an image shows up on his computer. He takes a few passes at slightly different angles so the machine can pick up the details in full 3D. John talks to me enthusiastically about what's possible with this technology. Uh, so we had a violin hanging in our shop, and it, it had been there for about 20 years, because when it was purchased, they didn't know the top was insanely thin. And it was so thin, if you were to put weight on it from a cast, you know, to make a cast, it would deform. So it just hung in the shop for 20 years. So I took it, I took the top off, and I just scanned it as it was, and I carved a cast to hold it in. And it, from there, I, I've been making patches to reinforce it. So I thinned it even further and then scanned it and I'm putting in large bell patches and, and basically redoing the whole top so it'll be all new wood in the end. That's amazing. So, you know, it's, it's only like a $13,000 instrument, but it's good practice and it, you know, it'll, um, it'll give the instrument new life. Greg and I moved to the tool room, often interrupted by individuals running something through a bandsaw or shaving off edges with a belt sander. He's got his CNC machine set up next to a laptop and an Xbox gaming controller. Okay, so this looks just like a 3D printer that I've seen, mm -hmm. except 
it's going to do the opposite. It's going to remove material. Yes, it's subtractive. And then I see literally a Makita, like. Yeah, that's a little, you can yeah. buy a, a, this kind of a head, routing head, uh, like at Home Depot or something like that. So it's a Makita router. Yeah. Great. Uh-huh. Well, let's do it. But there's lots that happens while we aren't recording. The machine faults before we get started and needs a restart. Greg glues down the maple plug in the wrong orientation and has to begin again. Also, in his mad efforts to pack his entire shop at 3 a.m. a few nights before, he's neglected to bring the finest drill bit. He calls up his shop to have it overnighted. So I think this is going to be like an 18-minute run. Okay. And then it's not going to be as good as I hope, but this is a, qu a quarter-inch shaft um, straight flat bit, so, but it'll still get you close enough, I think, to, to fill that. Okay. So we're going to say, okay, there, we're going to turn on the machine. We proceed with the cut anyway, because five workshop days go by so very quickly at Oberlin. I watch the machine drill away. I take a break for dinner and come back around 9 p.m. to cut away the extra material at the sides so the piece will fit down against the back of my peg box. I get the material cut, I click the piece into place, and it wobbles. It moves back and forth along the bed of my peg box like a seesaw. Confused, I look back at the blue plug of repro rubber and I try to fit it into the same place. And there's a gap at the front. If the wood block could move like rubber, I could easily smash the plug into place. But unfortunately for our business, Tonewood is a bit more particular. It's a wash for the day. I feel sleep calling me, so I text Greg about the wobble and call it a night. I wake up to see his response Wednesday morning. Let's try cutting another with a proper bit. Day three of not doing a scroll graft. This time, I let the repro rubber set inside the peg box a good half hour before I dare touch it. I have since put together that I was the issue more than the computer pulling out the rubber before it had fully cured and getting a slightly warped bed. Greg is waiting for his finer bit to arrive. In the meantime, I go to lunch with Team Omo and Jerry Lynn, as per usual, spouts wisdom at us. The danger of this technology, well, there's, there's really two parts to that danger. The first one is uh, what I like to call getting patch happy. If you have the ability to uh, scan and, and mill just about any section on an instrument, you, uh, you, well, you, you kind of think, gosh, I could just do this. However, more patches does not equal more better. In, in fact, quite the opposite. More patches often will, will bring failure faster to an instrument than what you would like to have it. The other danger in this is if you don't know, I'll say the I'm going to say the rules, but the tendencies of how we fit patches manually, you can run into a lot of trouble. Think about, for example, something like a sound post patch. 
when you fit a sound post patch, the last final fitting is done under clamp tension, meaning you put the patch in the patch bed. It's It's got a stone hinge or wood hinge of little um, studs around the patch bed to, to keep you aligned. Then the, the clamp comes in place. You have chalk in the bed. You tap on the clamp. You release the clamp, and then you read where the chalk fits. If you don't have some mechanism in place to keep the plate uh, sucked into the cast, you can get false readings. I've already seen this on social media where people are posting patches where you can see the rise up in the plate in the patch. And therefore, you have a very accurate not fitting patch. It's a long process. But again, by the end of the day, I have a piece that fits. It clicks into place so beautifully, it's hard to take it back out to even glue the thing. It's poetry in the form of wood. Without removing a grain of old material, I have a strong, secure scroll that will endure for the next generation. Despite the hiccups and setbacks, and I am assured that there are so many ways that technology can screw up, I'm very intrigued about what is possible with our present and future computer coworkers. There will still be times when human hands are the best for the job and human problem solving will be incredibly necessary for the generations of luthiers going forward. But this technology lets us be so much more conservative when it comes to restoring. It seems inevitable that more and more shops will have a CNC machine as the years pass. Meanwhile, there are still scroll graphs going on. I'm watching Jason Peoples make his first cut into his scroll. I see the tension on his face. I see the sweat dripping down almost onto the scroll. So you've marked that with a white pencil. Is that a grease pencil? Yeah. Okay, and so we're making the cut. We're going down. We got the angle. It's looking solid. This is the play-by-play. We go to one of the weekly instructors, Eliane LeBlanc, for her input. Throughout the week, she's been incredibly helpful, aiding both myself and Jason and a half dozen others in diagnosing unexpected issues with their scroll graphs and seeing the right angles, getting straight lines and crisp edges. Yeah, no, that looks good, that's good. You remained um, above the floor, which uh, is what we discussed. Yes. So no, it's great, so nice. go, go ahead. The and angle, the angle we talked yeah, about. Yeah, everything is good, so go ahead, second one like that. Okay. And, um, and then clean out the back. Yes, and then you can do these additional cuts yes. and to just chip out um, what you don't need. Yeah, so I don't have to throw it away. Not yet. <laughs> not yet, not okay. yet. And what happened to Jason's scroll? We'll talk with him directly after a word from our sponsors. A special thanks to House of Note, a luthier-owned violin shop in the Twin Cities of Minnesota for their support of this episode of OMO. While covering the many demands that we deal with in this industry, from restoration to repairs for players at all levels, House of Note wants you makers to know they sell quite a few modern maker instruments and bows. 
If you've just done your final setup for your violin and you're looking to hang it in a shop that understands new instruments, look no further than House of Note. Check them out today at houseofnote.com. Homo Sapiens, advance your skill set with Learning Trade Secrets workshops in Ashland, Ohio. For late summer, we have two workshops of note. Intermediate to Advanced Bow Restoration with David Orland is July 23rd through 28th. You can learn best repair practices and specialized techniques for bow restoration and how to approach the complex problems of wear and old failed repairs. For instrument makers looking to refine their skills, the Making Masterclass with Bill Scott is here this July 30th through August 4th. In this class, we focus on aesthetics, workmanship, and preparation for competition entry. Not for beginners, this class is for mastery. Sign up today at learningtradesecrets.com. Jason Peoples. Hi. <laughs> you have been working on your scroll graft that is pinched right at the neck, right where the chin is, and we've decided collectively it is so pinched, you've got to take some extra steps. Yeah, it's uh, it's very tiny there, and unless I want to do a really, really weird shape uh, right where it meets it, I'm going to have to basically do it twice, so I need to cut way further in and try and match the flame and get the thickness right, and then we can do a proper graft. So it's a double graft, so it's double you, the work. You're doing a graft and then another graft. Yeah, a graft of a graft. Okay. That's insane. Yeah, well that's what we do here at Oberlin, insanity. And so the reason for that is because you have to create some width yeah. across the peg box and then you have to create more width. Yeah, you, you need the width and then you need the stability across that. Uh, so the first step is not not uh, really concerning the neck, it's, it's getting the, the walls of the peg box the right thickness so that when you do the graft, everything's good. So it's 9 a.m. Wednesday morning. Yeah. How confident are you that you will finish this? Oh, I am confident that I will not. <laughs> but... If, uh, my goal is to get far enough in it that I have, can ask all the questions so I can do it at home and repeat it as many times as I need. I, I'm confident that you will learn a lot. I certainly hope so. Welcome back, everybody. When I recorded with Jason, that was Wednesday, and we're back here on Thursday evening. How is that progress going on that double neck graft? Uh, slow but steady. You know, if you'd asked me last night, I would have said not very well. Uh -huh. um, it's kind of a roller coaster, but uh, a lot of very careful fitting. Um, part of part of the process is making uh, scales or a cast of different sides of the peg box so it doesn't yep. move on you because it gets so thin yeah. that it wants to move as you're trying to work on it, which puts you in circles. Yeah. Um, so I'm finally to getting a little of that chalk fitting like we talked about to get all the sides perfectly fit. And then I'll be able to glue in my plug, the first graft, mm -hmm. um, and then I get to do it all again. Yeah. So <laughs> there's that. But, uh, but we've got the grain lined up and the flame looking pretty good, so this part of the peg box is going oh. to look nice for the regular knit graft. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, when you kind of can't take it anymore and you're ready to throw it through the window, uh, you get up and walk around and look at one of the other several people doing a net graft and see where they're at. And yeah. uh, sometimes they walk over and 
see if you're a little further they kind of have hope like well if you've made it maybe i can get there and uh so it's kind of nice we're all in it together we're all yeah. suffering together by choice. <laughs> you're you're two steps ahead of me i uh, i think maybe uh, you're 10 steps ahead of uh, me and i don't know i've lost but, count of steps but i i've got my so I, i've got that little piece in there in the back and mm-hmm. i've got my three angles i got my sides and my back and i'm trying to get rid of all the bumps and make them all like super perfectly flat yes and then it looks like next mm-hmm. i'm going to take that block of wood that's mm-hmm. going to turn into a neck mm-hmm. and then cut similar angles yeah that match and wedge right into that scroll yep uh so am i missing anything uh <laughs> um i find that although all those are all the steps there's a thousand little steps for every step uh-huh. Uh, so, oh, and, and yeah. lots of critique from the instructors in between. Which which is helpful because <laughs> yes, sometimes is. you're like, ah, I keep, um, keep doing the same thing and the same thing happens. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, try this. And you're like, well, yes, that's yeah. perfect. Thank you. <laughs> that's why I've driven across the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of, there's, there's people from other countries here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... Mexico, Japan. Yeah, uh, and... So many other things going on. Is, is there anything that's sticking out that you've seen, or something that has just blown your brains to bits? Well, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, Jaime's presentation, who was on the show uh, some time ago, yeah. um, on how to glue up uh, two boards. And in this case, we're gluing up um, a top, a violin top. Yeah. Two different, two plates to yeah. make a violin top. Yeah. And, and the crazy thing is it's actually the same board that we've cut in half and mm-hmm. glued together, which seems a little redundant, but I promise it's worth it. Um, <laughs> and so getting that grain aligned in a really brilliant way to think of it and a really brilliant way to clamp it, uh, that actually doesn't involve any clamps and is so yeah. much easier and stronger honestly yeah. um and he, he did a great job and it just really changed the way i thought about it yeah and you know when i see what he's doing and he's what is that that rubber he was like some kind of tire it was a truck tire he's wrapping bits of a truck tire around these pieces of wood uh-huh. if i had read this in a book <laughs> i would have never sorted out what he was doing but yeah. to see it in person it's just this five minute demo yeah like here's where i figure out exactly where the grain lines fall and and yeah. there, it's actually if we're thinking about like x-axis and y-axis the conventional thinking is that you line them up perfectly and he's he's slightly off on one of the axes when he joins them because, because go ahead the grain the grain in that part ran differently than the other part yes and so now even though visually they look off the grain is more aligned yes yeah and the the inner tube lets him actually be able to clamp with precision this uh to get the grain aligned which is so brilliant but yeah while he was first saying it i was not fully following it and then he showed and i was like oh i get it yeah. everything about that's brilliant yeah yeah you know what i've also enjoyed uh i read the um the vicer book actually i made copies of mm-hmm. the section on the net graph because i didn't want to bring the whole book because mm-hmm. i had to get on a plane yeah and so i read the way that we did this 40 years ago yeah. and i was like okay i got it i understand and then i got here and they're like yes and 
here's 10 other things we do to (laughs) (laughs) like to get more clarity on how we see it Mm -hmm. to get more precision on how we make the cut and so um, I'm learning all of those along the way, yeah. which is so insightful. I'm so appreciative. But yeah. cool to think about, like w- with your interview with Margaret Shipman, about yeah. how it's grown yeah. from then, which is was the intent, yeah. and uh, and and made better, further fleshed out. It's yeah. it's really cool, and to and to be able to have access to that information. Yeah, and so that was great to have that foundation, and then come here. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I've seen. Oh, I've seen some. So you, you didn't know that you were going to have to do this whole milling CNC, add a floor to your peg box when you came. I had no clue. Right. And like all of the story that we covered on it, it really did blow my mind. Yeah. Oh, you know what? One thing I didn't say. What's that? Uh, There was one day where Jeffrey Holmes sat down next to me on the workbench and I was kind of agog at all that I had seen that was possible Mm -hmm. with milling and, and all the ways it can go wrong. Not all the ways, at least a couple of the ways in in this brief time and uh, still being so impressed that this technology, there's a ways to go, but there's so much promise and it can be so conservative and I was like, uh, Jeffrey, do you, do you think like 20 years, every violin shop will have this? And he's like, oh, 10. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I better get on, on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At, at the very least to, to understand yeah. it and know what's, what's a good suit for, you know, yeah. what the, the dangers are that we got to see a couple of, well, there was another person that's doing a double scroll graft and they have other problems with in fact they didn't know they were doing a scroll graft at all uh, <laughs> until they got here um, they had a through patch to do and there was worm damage and they end up doing some CNC on that mm-hmm. and uh, Jimmy Dugdale uh, gave a presentation on infrared um, yes. and being able to kind of like an x-ray, see um, if there's weird things going on below the surface of the wood. Like worm damage that's yeah. not apparent. Exactly. And you, you can see if there's, oh, there's a patch there, or it was partially filled, but it didn't get all the way. Um, it's not, it's still being researched. There's still a lot to learn, but it's amazing what you can see. And so those surprises uh-huh. uh, that you're not expecting, it helps mitigate that. And now, I was only glancing at that at that over my shoulder because yeah. I was already behind on my repair work. <laughs> Am I to understand that dude took apart a camera and then put an infrared light inside the camera? No. Um, although that would be cool too. Okay. Um, so he has a scientist friend who is researching these particular things, uh, spectrum, uh, spectrums of light and refraction on violins and wood uh, and those sorts of things. Okay. And um, he's already kind of working with him on that. And they got into talking about this, and he was very interested in pursuing infrared as a way of looking through an instrument. And together they developed some little boards that have LEDs that plug into the camera. Okay. And that let, that so that, that boards go underneath inside the violin... Uh, and shine light through, and the camera picks it up. Okay. Yes. I understand. So it all yeah. lights up at the same time that you need it. Yeah. Okay. All right. I 
I follow that better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this reminds me of something that Jerry Lynn said my first year here. He said, Oberlin is like trying to drink from a fire hose. Yeah. Because all of this was happening and I don't even have time to absorb it. I'm working on my project. There's some amazing presentation happening behind me. Yeah. Um, Jason, how would you try to summarize for you the importance of Oberlin? Well, you know, my first year before I went, I thought it was going to be a great uh, learning resource on how to do it right. Because, you know, I like to try and learn how to do it right. Mm -hmm. Um, But what it turned out to be was a way to open my way of thinking and hear lots of different ways to do things, lots of different right ways to do things, and their reasons, the why people do those things. So you might apply them to different repairs uh, or choose what's gonna suit you best um, and consider things you might not have considered before. And it extends beyond that. It extended to business practices, customer problems, uh, organizational things, all those kind of things. and and. A new way to think about them uh, and other things about life since we all kind of are struggling with a lot of the same things oh yeah and and the ability uh, because everyone is so welcoming here because we share so much um, to continue sharing after we leave uh, and uh, keeping our thinking flexible yeah yeah I, I agree with all that and I would add to it it's just a reminder of how very human we all are. Mm-hmm. We're not um, these lone islands. We're not competitors necessarily. Um, we're uh, we're a guy with new twins at home, and we're um, a guy that did luthiery on a bus across the Americas, yeah. and uh, we're <laughs> we're an award-winning maker who cares a, carries around a whoopee cushion. And, Mostly that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, we're, you know, people trying to figure out long-distance relationships. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we're bow makers who spent years busking in Paris. Yeah. And uh, we're family. Yeah. And it's a it's a family that you get to choose. Yeah. And I, I think... For me, it shows the value in looking for that, even when it's hard to find. And it, uh, and I hope that everyone can find that kind of family, and even if it's not Oberlin family. Yeah. There are lots of Oberlins. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you can look for them, if you can make them. Jason. Yes. We've never told our family story. <laughs> right? Yeah. All, yeah. all these years on Omo, we've never told... The secret. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to say it? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I met Rosie so many years ago that I can't remember the count. But uh, we were working on building a deck the size of a house. Uh uh, And Rosie was rehearing a bow. Yes. And I was like, that's pretty cool. I'd love to learn that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And you're like, hey, come hang out on some Thursdays yeah. and we'll learn some stuff. And over time, I needed some extra work at my other job and uh, her dad's if, shop needed help. If I may. Yeah. You already had a background in restoring furniture. Yep. And you were a music major. Yep. 
and teaching guitar lessons. Yeah. So you just, you had all the pieces. Yeah. And you came over to my shop, and the very first day, you're asking me about how the cut of the grain on yeah. the bridge influences its integrity and sound. And yeah. I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think, I think, uh, I think you might be better than me at this. <laughs> well, we got to, to walk down that together and figure yeah. out things, which yeah. is part of the fun, part of the family, right? Yeah. Yeah. So a, an hour away from my shop yeah. is my dad's shop yeah. who my, he's since passed on. My mother inherited it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, with all of that, when he got sick, we need a lot of extra help. Yeah. And uh, you stepped in. I did. And you you were kind of like family there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was, yeah, I was going one day a week doing all the repairs for a for a pretty busy rental shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, under that kind of work, everybody kind of appreciates each other. Uh, yeah. You know, and it, it was it was like family. And, um, and that ended up turning into... Uh, an offer to, to leave my job and, and take ownership in part that would grow. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I kind of got to rebuild the shop because we moved over a couple suites to a bigger one. Well, not only rebuilding the shop in that way, yeah. but my father didn't get any training from anywhere and, 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 di- and didn't really, it didn't really matter. He was yeah. like, ah, the kids are happy. The teachers are happy. That's all. He was, he was just kind of happy go lucky with that. And you transformed it into a shop that really takes repairs and restorations seriously. And it's been so awesome to see where it started and where it is. I'm so proud of what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah. I, I really, um, the, the reason I was so interested in uprooting my life to work with this shop in particular and not some other shop somewhere is because your dad started a shop based on really cool principles, mm-hmm. helping people in community um, and doing that through violin repair and some of it a little unorthodox and some of, sure. it, some sure. of it, he learned some really cool <laughs> skills, you know, it's always a mix, but yeah. um, that's the kind of business I wanted to be a part of. Yeah. And uh, so I'm really happy to, to, to stick to that. Yeah. I'm glad you're around. I'm glad you're in my life. I'm glad you're part of OMO. Me you too. make it really beautiful. It's it's great to do family together. <laughs> uh, all you family out there, <laughs> thank you. Thanks to all of you, uh, our extended family, whether you are a luthier or a violin player or an enthusiast, thank you for listening. I want to say next month we've got coming the reopening of the National Music Museum in South Dakota. They've been renovating and expanding for several years, and OMO is here to give you a virtual tour. So stay tuned next month. Thanks again, everybody. Y'all take care. Bye. OMO is an all-luthier podcast produced by Rosie DeLoach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening. <laughs>